Welcome to worship today. It's so good to see you here. A good number of your friends were at Saturday night last night, our Saturday, Seahawk Saturday. We, have, we filled this intersection, so uh, they're, off, they're off watching the birds, and, and you are here worshiping the Lord. So I praise you, for you are wonderfully made. Um, this has been a wonderful 48 hours for those of us who have been praying for Andrew Brunson's release two years ago. He was unjustly imprisoned in Turkey, uh, this man who had served so faithfully as a pastor. You've heard of him even if you're visiting with us for the first time because he's been on national news. What you may not know is he is one of us. He is a member of our denomination. In fact, his home church is the church that our daughter Rachel worships at in North Carolina. So we have a lot of ties, and our stated clerk, Jeff Jeremiah, has almost had a second full-time job working for uh, his release, along with so many other folks that have done that. And so what great news it was when uh, our, the prayer of our wristbands were, uh, were answered a couple of days ago, and we heard that he had been released and made his way home. For me, Pastor Larry and I were discussing this. I, we wondered, always you ask God, why? Why the unjust, uh, why the, this injustice? Uh, and then we saw this um, time with him and the president in the Oval Office, surrounded by the press. And after a time of conversation, uh, Andrew asked uh, the president, may I pray for you? And the president acceded, and he knelt down in front of him and laid his hand on the president of our country and prayed that the Holy Spirit would fill him, then guide him and lead this nation with integrity. Uh, it was a, a profound moment, and I thought, is this the reason for which... Uh, he endured these two years, that this witness could be offered. I heard this on the news uh, as I was driving on the radio. I heard this man praying that the Holy Spirit would fall upon our president on the ABC News. You know, I don't know what it will take to bring our nation together, but it won't be bad if God's people are laying and praying for such a thing. So we are all very grateful for that, and we're grateful for his courageous witness. By the way, did you notice his wife, when Andrew was done, she, he sat down, they were going to stop, and the wife said, may I pray too? And the president, oh, yes. And, and then the wife prayed too. So good for him. Way to go, Noreen. You also notice he had some notes. He, I, I would have had notes too if I was in that situation. But he came prepared to ask that question and to offer that prayer. And uh, what a courageous witness, an example of humility and courage all wrapped up in one. It was great. If you were with us last week, you had the opportunity of hearing one of the daughters of our church preach her first message on a Sunday morning. Uh, Julie Hawkins, our director of worship of missions, did a terrific job. Uh, she and her husband are off on a celebration of their anniversary right now. But boy, did we hear the word from, from Julie. It was terrific. It's been two weeks then since we have been with our friend Jonah, and so we return to the story of Jonah. The last time we were with him, we found him finally in Nineveh doing the thing that God had asked him to do. You will recall that Jonah is the most reluctant prophet that you might find in all of the scriptures. When God said to him, I want you to go and preach in Nineveh, his response was to jump on a boat and head the entire opposite direction. But God had some gentle persuasion in mind, and after a little prodding, he finally got Jonah's attention, and finally Jonah does what God wanted him to do in the first place. He goes and he preaches in Nineveh. How many of you remember the phrase seeker-sensitive churches in the 90s? Anybody ever heard of that, seeker-sensitive churches? The idea was we need to remove the obstacles that keep people from coming to church. 
And so one of the things was you removed the language, the verbiage that might be offensive. So language of sin and repentance and hell and judgment, all of that went out the window. That was not to be found in, in the sermons. And in some cases, churches even took down their crosses because they were too religious. That was seeker-sensitive worship. You will not find a less seeker-sensitive sermon preached in the Bible than the sermon that Jonah preached to the Ninevites when he finally obeyed the Lord. Take a look at it. It's a little short five-word in Hebrew, eight-word in English, uh, very terse message. There's no preamble. There's no warm, fuzzy hallmark stories to warm the crowd up a little bit. There's no apparent interest at all in how the people might actually respond to the message. Jonah just lets rip with his hellfire and damnation sermon. In 40 days, God is going to wipe you out. That was the message. In 40 days, God is going to wipe you out. Boom! There it is. No mugs for newcomers after the service. No shaking hands at the door. None of it. All he did was wander through that great city and preach the same gloomy message over and over and over again. Essentially, what he was saying is, you guys are toast. (laughs) And you'll never believe what happened next. Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. As simple as that. Who saw that coming? These wicked people of a wicked city, of a wicked kingdom. They listened to what Jonah said and they were cut to the heart. We read that they fasted and then they prayed and they put on sackcloth, burlap to, as a sign of their mourning, of their repentance. They even put their poor animals in sackcloth, all of them. It looks something like that. Those poor cows are walking around, what happened to me? I go in to get milked and I come out with a wardrobe, you know? They, they, in short, they threw themselves at the mercy of God. It was the greatest revival in human history. The hearts of the people were changed. So much so that the Lord changed his course with them. And we find the very last verse of chapter 3, the, these words. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way... God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them. And he did not do it. God relented. He spared the city. The people were saved all because of Jonah's preaching. It's amazing. And you would think that a preacher who had been thus used by the Lord in such a powerful way would feel some sense of of gratitude or humility or astonishment or All of the above. Any of those would have been a good pick. That isn't exactly Jonah's response. And so as we come to our text this morning, Jonah chapter 4, the first four verses, I want you to listen to the response of the preacher who preached the greatest revival sermon in human history. Ready? Here we go. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Then he prayed to the Lord and said... O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we laugh and, and we shake our heads in wonder at this response. And yet, I suspect it will cut a little closer to the bone by the time you're done with us today. So, open our hearts to see ourselves in Jonah's petulance. Amen. As I told you, Nineveh was a great city of Assyria. I have incorrectly told you it was the capital city. I discovered in further research that it was not. But it was certainly one of the great cities of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians made their bones, they made their reputation by their cruelty, their torturous terrorist uh, treatment of their victims, of of their enemies. It is perhaps an irony of history that In our own time, another bloodthirsty group called ISIS has had control over Mosul, Iraq, which is the modern-day site of Nineveh. Did you know that? Mosul, the modern-day site of Nineveh. As a matter of fact, I want you to take a look at this. Do you know what you're looking at? This is in Mosul, Iraq. This, This is Jonah's tomb. This is Jonah's tomb. It's an ancient tomb that sits on a mound in the city. And it has been revered over the centuries by Muslims, Christians, and Jews alike. It was a greatly revered treasure. And I say it was a greatly revered treasure because ISIS, in their attempt to expunge all of history, did this to it. They blew it up. They destroyed it. Take a look at the next picture. That's a before and after shot of Jonah's tomb. Here was a man, a a, a tomb that that memorialized a man who was used by God to save the people of that ancient city. Jonah preached, the people repented, the mission was accomplished. Huzzah, they might say. And what was Jonah's response to this empowering work of God's spirit through his preaching? His response was, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The Hebrew is far more graphic. It says, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Exceedingly evil to Jonah. Jonah was enraged that the people of Nineveh would repent. He was even more enraged that God did not carry out what he promised he was going to do and destroy that loathsome city. And now it all becomes clear. Now we understand. We thought that Jonah ran away because he was terrified of the brutal Ninevites. But no, Jonah didn't run away from the Ninevites because of fear. He ran away from the Ninevites because of hatred, lip-curling contempt. Jonah didn't want to preach to the Ninevites because Jonah despised them. And he wanted the Lord to wipe them out. They had it coming. And you hear that in the conversation with the Lord. You can almost see him wagging his finger at God when he says, Is this not what I said to you when I was back in my country? I told you you were going to do this. I knew that you were up to no good. Good. 
I knew you were going to save these scumbags if I preached to them, and I don't want to be a part of it. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And why was Jonah so certain that God would be willing to relent? Because Jonah knew the character of God. And he recounts God's character right back to him in that prayer. God, it is, it is language that we hear sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Psalms, you would hear these phrases again and again and again. Jonah says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Those are the words, but I guarantee you that was not the tone he used. If we had an audio recording of that conversation with God, it would have sounded something like this. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. You are so soft. That is what he was really saying. That is the tone of the prayer. Jonah believed all of these things to be true of God, and he loved all of these qualities about God when they were directed toward him and toward his people. But the thought that God would show grace or mercy or forgiveness toward the Ninevites, this was loathsome to Jonah. He cannot believe it. He cannot abide it. And then he goes into tantrum mode. Did you spot tantrum mode? Therefore now, O Lord, please just take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. It is so pathetic. It's like you're listening to a whiny, spoiled toddler who's throwing a tantrum in a mall, lying on the ground, kicking his feet, screaming at the top of his lungs, embarrassing his parents. It is pathetic. Just take me. Just kill me now. And then in one of our Heavenly Father's greatest moments of loving with logic, this is one of his great parenting moments as a a Heavenly Father revealed to us. God asks this simple question. Do you do well to be angry? In other words, do do you really have a right to pitch this fit with me, Jonah? You have just described my character. You have just said that I'm gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Knowing these things all about me, is it not my right to treat others that way too? What right do you have to be angry if I choose to show grace to others? Of course, Jonah's whole point is, no, you cannot love others in that same way, especially not other bad people. This is exactly what Mandy was talking about earlier today. This is exactly the Old Testament version of the prodigal son story. You know the story. The young man wants his father's inheritance so he can go off and live his life in riotous living. Well, Jonah is the elder brother. He cannot believe that his father welcomes back this whoring drunk of a younger brother who wasted his father's inheritance. Not when he remained behind. Not when he was so obedient. Not when he was so faithful. Grudgingly, but he was so faithful. He was the one that deserved the father's inheritance. But not this worthless brother. And that is Jonah's gripe in a nutshell. 
And beloved, I am afraid that there are too many of us Christian folk who are cut from the same self-righteous cloth. One of the most spiritually dangerous places that we can be is when we start sorting humanity according to those who deserve saving and those who don't. Those who deserve God's mercy and those who do not. And that only happens when we start thinking of ourselves better than we ought to, a lot better than some, and begin to believe that God grades on the curve. Take ISIS. We hate those guys. We hate them for their brutality, for the way that they're trying to wipe out history, the way that they are brutalizing our Christian brothers and sisters. And when we hear that a, a drone strike has wiped out a bunch of them, honestly, there's a part of us, a part of me, that says that's glad because they got it coming. And the thought that God might love them, that God might want to save them too, that is hard to swallow. They do not deserve it. Not those people. They deserve judgment. But we don't have to look around the world to find people that make our lips curl in contempt. I've lived a while now. I lived through the 60s. I don't think I've ever seen a time when our nation was as divided as we are now. And I will confess, I find myself drawn into that battle. I have some strong views, politically and otherwise. That might come as an enormous surprise to some of you. And I find myself more and more disgusted by those on the, quote, other side. It is easy for me to attribute to them evil and ill will. And maybe you have felt some of the same thing. As you think about it, who are those people for you? Who are those people who make your lip curl in contempt? Fill in the blank. Is it those Republicans? Is it those Democrats? Is it those NSNBC watchers? Is it those Fox News watchers? Is it Kavanaugh? Is it Pelosi? Who are the ones who are irredeemable? Who are the ones in your sight that you'd really rather that the Lord didn't save? And maybe it's more personal for you. Maybe it's the husband who abandoned you or the wife who betrayed you or the man who abused you when you were a child or the boss who humiliated you or the friend who sued you. Most of us have those people who are on the other side, people who have hurt us deeply, people who have treated us horribly, who have scarred us in some way, so much so that it's hard to imagine that God would save them. And even if he would, we'd rather he didn't. But do you know what that means? When we begin to separate those who deserve God's mercy from those who do not, do you know what that means? It means that we've forgotten how lost we were before God found us and saved us. We've forgotten. A woman named Della Erstad went camping with her family in our state. Um, the rest of the camp group went off to hike one day while Della stayed back to prepare dinner with her five-year-old son. She was so occupied in preparing a feast for these returning hikers that when they came back and they asked where he was, she was shocked to realize she did not know where her boy was. Can you imagine five-year-old? Every one of you has had a kid 
knows the terror that strikes your heart when you suddenly realize you have no idea where that child is. And so they spread out through the woods and they begin to cry out his name. No answer. Nothing. They made their way down to the lake, embracing themselves for the worst possible discovery. But they found nothing there either. And so they turned around and again began to work their way through the woods, calling out the little boy's name again and again and again. Finally, one of them heard a faint cry. So they hushed themselves and they called out to him again and they heard the cry again. And so they began to move towards it. And as they got closer and closer to the sound, they realized they were walking towards the outhouse that was near the camp. They went to the door of the outhouse, they opened it up, they looked down there and standing in the bottom of that pit with excrement up to his armpits was that little boy crying out, mommy, 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 with his hands in the air. When we get disgusted or suspicious or angry at the idea that God would save unworthy people, it means that we have forgotten something that is basic to our salvation. We were unworthy too. We were that kid. You are that kid. Lost in your wanderings, immersed in the filth of your sin, hopelessly lifting up your eyes, your, your arms, begging to be saved. That's what we were. And that's what many of you believe yourselves to be. Many would say, as you look back, that, yep, I was in my arms up to Uh, up to my arms in poop, and then God saved me. But maybe you will say, as too many Christian folks say, but at least I wasn't as bad as that guy. At least I'm not as bad as those people. My sins are nicer than theirs. Which shows how little we understand the destructive power of sin. Pastor Larry illustrated this beautifully a few weeks ago when he said that sin is like eating a brownie that has a teensy bit of arsenic in it. Would you? Of course not. Why? Because it's poison and even a little poison is deadly. The Bible says that we are all by nature poisoned with sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans says. Sin is not a thing we do. Sin is a spiritual infection that idolizes the self. Self Self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, self-indulgence. That is the idolatry of sin. That is the liturgy of sin. And our suburbanite sin may not be as spectacular as as terrorism or as obvious as bare-knuckled politics. But every one of us had a little arsenic in our souls. Every one of us is like that little kid, just as lost, just as wretched, just as desperate. Oh, there might be others who are are deeper in the poop hole than we are, but really, one turd more or less does not really make much of a difference. We are all in the same crappy state of sin, and we needed rescue. Let me finish the story. When they found the little guy standing there, they began to scramble around finding something to pull him out. And they couldn't find anything to reach down and pull the kid out. And finally, the mother, in desperation, said, forget it. Just lower me down. And so they held Della by her ankles. And they lowered her down into that pit. You know what outhouse holes look like? They are narrow. They are caked with filth and it didn't matter. She was lowered right through that hole 
right through that gunk until she reached her baby and she grabbed him in his arms, her arms and she pulled him to safety. Does that sound like any savior you know? Jesus found us in our spiritual mess. The pure son of God loved us so much that he allowed himself to be lowered down into our filth. In fact, he took our filth upon him. He was covered with our filth so that he might lift us up to purity and new life. And we forget that. We who have been saved by Jesus, we sometimes look at others, the unworthies of this world, in the same way that Jonah looked at the Ninevites. And we can be superior and judgmental and selfish of God's mercy. Those wretched people, obviously, their sins need saving, but they don't deserve it. But neither did we. We find it hard to love those lost people. But God did. God does. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Like you and me. And our Ninevites. And I have been particularly convicted of this self-righteousness in my own life. During this roiling, ugly, schismatic political season. I've been convicted of my own superiority. So when I see certain political signs or certain political ads or certain political bumper stickers. Or certain political buttons. I discover my lips starting to curl and, and my worst assumptions beginning to rise up. And when I read this and was convicted of that in my own soul, I said, from now on, every time I feel that, I'm going to pray for those people. I'm going to pray for the owner of the house that has that out there. I'm going to pray for the person that's wearing that button. Just yesterday, I was, I was walking and I was praying again and again and again, asking that the Lord would love them, would bless them, would save them because I know they are precious to him as I am. I don't know what it will take to turn the heart of this country around. Having a a pastor who has the guts to kneel down and pray for his president might be a good starting point. And it might not be a bad thing if the people of this church began to pray for those on the other side of where they so self-righteously stand that God's salvation might be freely given to all those for whom his son died. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting of the disaster that we deserve. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in that way. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who, though he was the spotless lamb of God, allowed himself to be dropped down into our muck and mess, to be stained by our sin, so that we might be drawn to safety and to purity before you. God, we thank you for all of those things and we confess that we want to hoard them. We want to keep them for ourselves and for the people that are like us. And then we write off the rest. Forgive us for that. Forgive me for that. And I pray that you would change our hearts to be reminded that you love the whole world 
that every soul, whatever they believe, whatever bumper sticker they have, whatever sign in their yard, whatever button on their chest, they are precious to you. They are beloved of your son. They were offered salvation through his death and resurrection. Would you humble us? Would you cause us to repent of our self-sufficiency, of our judgmentalism? And God, would you use our graciousness to share the word of your salvation? For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm glad you were here today. Thank you for being a part of God's people this morning. Following the service, we're going to have a time for prayer over there for healing prayer. If there's anything at all for which you would love to have an anointing and prayer from people who believe that God's Spirit is still at work, make your way over there. That would be really great. I want to remind you also of what Dr. Mandy had to say to us today about CR and the gift that that has been to so many hundreds and hundreds of people. Maybe you've never thought about it, but maybe that would be the trick for turning your heart in a direction that's going to bring more life. And so I would remind you, CR Wednesday nights, come, give it a try. And then finally, unlike Jonah, I am nicer to newcomers. And so I have a mug that I would like to give to you if you're visiting us for the first time. Would you please meet me back there? And, uh, and I would love to get to know you and give you a, a present just to say thank you for being here with us this day. This is a hard thing that we've looked at today. This whole issue of self-righteousness, it's a, it's a toughie. And it's, it's often hard to even see it, much less be freed of it. And it's only going to be with the work of the Holy Spirit that we are going to accomplish that. So let's get a refill, shall we? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's gracious people said, Amen. Amen.